Okay, good evening everyone. My name is Lucas Jaguer. I'm the proud assistant superintendent of Franklin Public Schools, and I want to welcome you all to the second installment of Critical Conversations. Uh, we began this series in November, where we focused on mental health and substance use, and this is the second installment, as I said, and we're focused on social media and the impacts that it can have. Social media can serve as a positive tool uh, to build connection, to share ideas, but when there's an over-reliance or a misuse, um, it can certainly create some adverse effects as well. Um, our goal tonight is to have the folks listening, uh, watching on Zoom and here live in person, to walk away with some information, tools, and strategies that we hope will be helpful for you to build a healthier relationship with social media for you and your family. I want to begin by acknowledging the members of our Franklin Public Schools Substance Abuse Task Force um, who are here tonight. I'd ask that right now um, they stand up just to be recognized for the work that they've done to really put together a solid program. So if you could stand, if you're a member of the Substance Abuse Task Force, please. <clears throat> Thank you. And I know you're all wondering, you know, how did the Substance Abuse Task Force come to host an evening on social media? And it's a great question. We have been meeting monthly uh, since, no, since the beginning of the year, talking about addiction. And when we think about addiction, we often think of it in terms of substances and whatnot. Well, during one of our conversations, um, some topics emerged that led into technology and the uh, addictive properties and addictive behavior that can be found um, when using technology and on social media. And then it led into a couple of other aspects which you'll hear tonight, and I don't want to steal anyone's thunder for some of the information they want to share. But um, that's how our, our group decided this really turned out to be an appropriate and timely conversation that we wanted to have with all of you. Um, we're about to kick that off, and I just want to thank our amazing partners with Safe Coalition and the work that they've done. Jennifer Knight is here, and so is Jim Derrick, uh, who are here, and we just really want to thank you for all the work that you do to partner with us. We sent an email out about the video Like, which is a community screening. If you haven't seen it, you still have an opportunity. We'll hear more about that later. But uh, they were able to fund that program for our town and buy a license that would allow everyone in our community to watch that, that video um, and that film. So we're just really grateful for the work and the partnership and collaboration, so thank you. Um, also want to acknowledge a few other people that are here tonight. First, our amazing superintendent, Dr. Hearn, is here, always in support. And always, um, always shows up, and we appreciate that. Um, also, we have members of our school committee, our town council. Uh, one of our town council members is here who is also on our substance abuse task force. Mr. David Callahan is here. Uh, yep. Our town administrator, Jamie Helen, is in the audience. We have, we have our state rep and another state rep here tonight, which is great. We have Jeff Roy, uh, Franklin's state rep. But we also have State Representative Sean Dooley joining us tonight to engage in this conversation. And last but certainly not least in the audience, we have our Lieutenant Governor, Karen Polito, is here, and she'll, she'll share some remarks as well uh, once we get through that keynote. So welcome and thank you for being here. So to conclude my remarks, uh, this program will include a keynote, remarks from Lieutenant Governor, a panelist discussion, an opportunity for the audience to engage in a Q&A session, and then we'll share some resources that you can walk away um, with some, some tools that will help, help us all just become uh, uh, better and, and more balanced when it comes to social media use. So with that said, 
Uh, please join me in welcoming State Representative Roy, who will introduce our keynote speaker this evening. Thank you. Enjoy the night. Well, our keynote speaker is coming to us from uh, beautiful San Francisco, California, and uh, we were trying to get her to come out here live, but uh, I think the rain, she probably said, I'm staying here in, in San Francisco. Um, is she ready to uh, roll out there? Yes, I am here. Can you okay, hear me? we can hear you. We can't see you, though. It now says you cannot start your video because the host has stopped. Come on, host, be generous. Let her in. Hello. Okay, one more step. There you are. Wow. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, coming this evening. It is my uh, great uh, pleasure and honor to introduce uh, Georgia Wells to you. Georgia Wells is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal's San Francisco Tech Bureau, and pre previously uh, Ms. Wells was an editor for the WallStreetJournal.com and covered emerging markets for the journal. And before that, she freelanced in Cairo during the Egyptian Revolution. Uh, Ms. Wells holds degrees from Stanford University, and it's great to have you here in Franklin. And um, why don't you uh, hit us off and tell us about some of the research that you have been doing uh, involving both uh, Facebook and Instagram, and uh, give us an, uh, a sense. I know, folks, uh, if you haven't grabbed it already, uh, the article that she wrote in September for the Wall Street Journal that really unmasked uh, Facebook is available uh, at one of the tables, so uh, take it uh, on your way out. So, Georgia, tell us about that research and uh, what you learned. Yeah, so much. Thank you so much for having me. I actually, I grew up in Cambridge and I'm a proud graduate of the Cambridge Public Schools, so I'm sad I can't be in Franklin tonight, but it feels not so far, even though I'm sitting here in San Francisco. So, last year, my colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Jeff Horowitz, he met this woman who worked for Facebook, and she became a really incredible source because what she was seeing at Facebook was concerning her, and she chose to document it. And she developed this huge, huge trope of documents, and one of the themes to come out of the, those documents was about teenagers and their mental health and Instagram. And that's my entryway into this conversation. So I had the privilege to go through this incredible trove of research and then spent many weeks last year speaking with as many teenagers as I could about their experience on social media. And what's striking is that Facebook had conducted research into teenagers and teenager mental health for three years. And, and that's what I'm excited to tell you guys about tonight. So Facebook did the research itself? Facebook hired these researchers. They came from management consulting. They came from, um, some of them had backgrounds in like in academia and statistics and in conducting this type of research. And in these researchers, they spent three years kind of doing all sorts of um, 
of research. Like they did the qualita qualitative research where they interviewed teenagers. They did quantitative where they looked at kind of teenager behavior on their platform. And one of the main themes to come out of this research was concern about something called negative social comparison. So, so negative social comparison, that's what happens when you're scrolling through Instagram and rather than thinking like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm learning about these people's lives. That's when the, you know, a, a part of your brain, and this can happen for anybody, kind of clips into the like, oh gee, how do I stack up next to these people who I'm looking at? Like, look at their amazing lives, their, their bodies, their homes, their their partners, their families, like, like their lives are incredible. And I'm starting to feel inadequate. And that was kind of the, the starting point for a lot of the concern that these researchers had was that negative social comparison, although it can happen in any part of your life on any sort of social media platform, that it could be extremely acute on Instagram. And the reason for the acuteness on Instagram was that on Instagram, there tends to be a focus on the body and the lifestyle, while on TikTok, it can be a little bit more like, you know, um, performative. So that can kind of provide more of a buffer between like TikTok feeling like real life. And on Snapchat, a lot of the, uh, the experiences people had were using these face filters that were intended to be more silly rather than beautifying. But on Instagram, it was this like focus on the body, on perfection, on lifestyle, but really kind of for some teenagers and anybody in particular, but teenagers, I mean, anybody in general, but teenagers in particular, it could really send them into these spirals. You know, uh, Georgia, in reading your piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal, I saw that 32% that of teen girls who said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. And, and that's a very high number. Can you uh, elaborate this and, and share with us some of the other things that you found in your research? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that number, when I came across it in the documents, it just, it absolutely stopped me in my tracks. It was, you know, like you said, 32% of teen girls. Like, this is not a small portion of the population. Like, this is, you know, if you look at a class of teenagers, this is a really good chunk of people. So 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, that Instagram made them feel worse. And just, like, speaking from personal experiences, having been a teen girl a long time ago, I think it's, I think many teen girls at times feel bad about their bodies. I think that's like part of the world we live in. Um, and so the researchers, what they found was that these, this negative social comparison that people were doing on their app, it actually had the power to change how in particular young women view and how they describe themselves. Um, but it wasn't just issues with the body and it wasn't just teen girls. It was overall one in five teenagers said that Instagram made them feel worse about themselves. And, and so for teens in the US, for te sorry, for teen boys in the US, it was 14% of teen boys said that Instagram made them feel worse about themselves. And for teen girls in the US, it was 21% of teen girls said that um, Instagram could make them feel worse about themselves. Um, and this is research uh, that Facebook did themselves, and they had all this information, and when they were pumping it out, they knew the impact of their product. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So what's interesting is the research um, 
the researchers are clear, they don't definitively know the causal effect, but they know that teenagers, in their, in their descriptions of how they felt, teenagers seems to believe that there was a causal effect, right? And the researchers, Instagram's own researchers in their documents came to use this causal language. Um, you know, they're like, we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, was one of the lines from the documents. Um, the, excuse me. The teenage, the researchers, they also looked at depression and anxiety, and they found that in these surveys they conducted that um, teenagers blamed Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression, and that this reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. So um, that was one of the striking things. Um, also, it wasn't just body issues, and it wasn't just like teens being sad. Like there was some really powerful, or what's the word? Like um, really kind of concerning numbers around like suicidal ideation, which is basically when people have like thoughts around suicide. And so for this research, they found that among teens who reported suicidal thoughts, that 13% of British users and 6% of American users trace that desire to kill themselves to Instagram. So it's really, really heavy material. Well, I want to talk to you a bit about um, how social media can play a role in impacting someone's or children's uh, sense of belonging. What were some of your findings related to the social emotional impacts on children who are not included, you know, that fear of missing out uh, Etc. And um, you know, I know that you talked to a number of uh, teenagers. And uh, can you tell us, uh, you know, aside from some of the additional findings, were there things that stood out to you uh, that surprised you about uh, how teenagers were using the app and and what the experience uh, looked like to them? Mm -hmm. For sure. So, for these conversations with teenagers. Like, I didn't restrict it to Instagram. Like, often it was, like, tell me about how you use social media and, you know, what, what are the diff different feelings you experience and what leads to them. And, like you mentioned, fear of missing out was a huge one. So for Instagram, one of the very, very common experiences that teenagers described was often it occurred, like, during their first year of high school, they'd be scrolling through Instagram and they'd see, they'd start to see photos from like a party or a hangout session that they weren't invited to. And so they'd see one friend post a photo, you know, say it's like at a birthday party or something. And then another friend at that same birthday party posting another photo from like, from a different perspective. And they described this feeling of like just scrolling and seeing example after example of some event that they weren't invited to. And my personal reflections, just when I was hearing these stories from teenagers was, you know, I, I went to high school when smartphones did not exist and Facebook and Instagram did not exist. And I recall the feeling of hearing about some event that, that I wasn't invited to, but I had the luxury of being able to sort of, um, being somewhat like denial about it and kind of think, well, I didn't want to go anyways, or, um, you know, I was busy, but these teenagers described like sitting alone in their rooms and hearing about and seeing it 
during the actual moment of, of teenagers, like their peers posting these photos. Um, another way that fear of missing out came up a lot was actually had to do with Snapchat rather than Instagram. And, it, and Snapchat, um, for people in the room who maybe don't use Snapchat, has this maps function where depending on the settings, you can see where your other friends on Snapchat are in real time. And Snapchat will kind of put this little label around, like if you have a couple of friends on Snapchat who are all in the same location, it'll put a little circle around them sometimes. And many of these teenagers described the feeling of opening up this map and seeing a whole lot of their friends all at someone's house, a little red circle around it, and like a reminder of like, here's you know a lot of your friends hanging out and, and you're not one of them. Um, so that was like another example of fear of missing out, kind of being in people's faces just in a really intense way. You know, you wrote about um, how uh, surprised you were that uh, many, teachers, uh, many teenagers understood the potential pitfalls of social media, yet they continue to use it. Can you talk to us about that? Mm -hmm. I was really, um, really, really, it impressed me how many teenagers sort of understood many of the principles that the researchers outline in, in these documents that I was going through at the same time. And even if the teenagers didn't have the like academic vocabulary that say the researchers were using, many of them explained to me this feeling of, excuse me, knowing that at times when they opened up Instagram, they might feel um, left out or they might feel uh, this, this aspect of negative social comparison. Like one teenager described to me showing up at high school for the first time and feeling like her low number of or what she perceived to be low, this number of followers she had on Instagram, she, excuse me, she said it felt like it was stamped on her forehead that all these other people she was meeting, she'd look them up on Instagram and see like, oh my goodness, they have like a thousand followers. Um, and she said that, she told me that she caught herself comparing herself to others, like according to popularity in ways that like didn't even matter to her, like intellectually that much. Like she wasn't like obsessed with popularity, but suddenly when she had it quantified in front of her, it affected how she felt about herself. And she identified all of this, which was, I thought, just an incredible like, amount of self-perspective. I'm sure she didn't have the vocabulary that, that the researchers were using, but she, she correctly saw what was happening. And as a result, she had actually attempted to try to limit how, like, when and how she was using Instagram and other social media as a result. Um, I was trying to, there were other teenagers who also, I'm trying to remember, um, like described feeling satisfied with themselves and their bodies and their lifestyles and opening up Instagram and then seeing like going onto the explore page. And that's where you can, you know, uh, search for content and the algorithm will serve you other types of content and suddenly feeling anxious as they looked at like, you know, video after video of like, um, workouts for how to get in shape for bikini season. And, and so these teenagers, they, they identified this mechanism where they would feel good about themselves. They'd open up Instagram, go onto the explore page, see all these like incredibly ripped and toned bodies and suddenly feel worse about themselves. So um, I, I was just like really blown away by the amount of hope I had for these teenagers that 
even though at times it made them feel worse about themselves, they had idea like they had an idea of what was happening and what they could do to try to address it. Well, I want to talk a bit about young people being on Instagram and Facebook in the first place and Facebook's acquisition of Instagram in 2012. It's clear that they were after our youth. And can you tell us a bit about the targeting of youth and, and how that fits in the conversation about appropriate age for kids to be able to appropriately use social media? Mm -hmm. So teens in the U.S., or, and I believe around the world, but certainly in the U.S., they spend a lot more time on Instagram than they do on Facebook. There's this line in the documents that just made me chuckle where one of the teenagers tells the researchers that Facebook is for old people, old isn't 40. I've heard that. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but so, it, the fact that teenagers are on Instagram more and spend more time when they do get on Instagram matters when you think about how Facebook makes money. So there's sort of two sides to this equation. There's Facebook wants to sign up as many people as they can for their products, and they want those people to stay on their products for as long as possible. And the reason is that the way Facebook makes money is selling ads, you know, filling that uh, space. You know, every couple of posts you'll see an advertisement. So in terms of Facebook's efforts to sign people up, they've already signed up the vast majority of people who own smartphones in, um, at least in developed countries. So it's like good luck finding someone with a smartphone who doesn't have a Facebook or Instagram account. Like, you can find it, but it's hard to do. Let me um, introduce you to my wife. She's one who does Oh, uh, no way. <laughs> no, good for her. Um, it's, you know, it can be hard to find, but like, yeah, your point, you know, they absolutely exist. But, so if you think about Facebook's future sources of growth, they can sign up people in developing markets, and my colleagues wrote about that extensively, they also can sign up people who are getting their first smartphones. And this is what brings us to teens and tweens. And so we see in the documents that Facebook is anxious. And just as a side note, I say Facebook, but you could, you know, Meta is now, I guess, the official name, but you know what I mean. Um, you can see in the documents that Facebook is anxious that when young people get their first smartphone, they often will download a slew of apps. Maybe it's um, TikTok, maybe it's Snapchat, maybe it's Discord. And there's anxiety, you can see anxiety that if these young people sign up for a different app, that they might not sign up for Instagram or Facebook. And, or if they do, they might wait longer to sign up. So this brings us to Instagram kids. Instagram Kids is this version of Instagram that Facebook has been working on that targets children. And Facebook's argument has been that, you know, kids and tweens often lie about their age when they sign up for Instagram. And so as a result, there's these underage users who are using an app that wasn't built for them and perhaps they're at greater risk. But in these documents, you can also see that Facebook has this um, incredible like this huge interest in trying to sign up these younger users in an attempt to, um, you know, sign them up for life as a customer. And um, so like that's something to keep in mind when you hear about Instagram for kids. Now, since the articles came out, Facebook actually said that they have paused their development on Instagram for kids. And that was partly in response to pressure from lawmakers. Um, but 
like just going through the documents, it's really clear, like all the steps that Facebook has done to try to um, to get its product in the hands of young people. So they set up this three-year goal to create more products for um, young people. They commissioned all of these strategy papers about the long-term business opportunities that, that these young people presented. And then um, one of the really striking moments in the documents is this line where the researchers contemplate whether there might be a way to engage children during playdates on some version of one of their apps. And, and then there was, this, there was this quote that was really striking. It was, why do we care about tweens? They are a valuable but untapped audience. Wow. So this gives you a little bit of insight into how the company thinks about um, young people. Well, the amazing thing is we probably wouldn't have known about any of this without your work and without your investigative reporting. So thank you so much. And I want to turn to the fact that uh, something that stands out in, in our minds is that Facebook's public stance was very different than what the research was showing. And when you spoke uh, with Facebook about this, uh, what was their reaction? Mm -hmm. It was part of what was so striking about this, and their reaction was that you can see in the documents that Facebook had access to data that outside researchers could only dream of. So in the past, you know, when people, reporters, not just myself, asked Facebook about, and, and also lawmakers actually, when they asked Facebook about issues around um, young people and mental health, Facebook did not share these findings. Like they didn't say that, you know, 32% uh, of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Um, instead, when Facebook executives were asked about these issues, um, they tended to point to other slightly kind of tangential points. When Mark Zuckerberg testified on Capitol Hill, um, I can't, my, the timeline is now a blur in my head, but I want to say it wasn't last fall, but the fall, it, it was a while ago. When Mark Zuckerberg um, testified on Capitol Hill, he said that there was not a consensus about kind of the effects of screen time, which is true, there is not a consensus about it. And when the head of Instagram, that's Adam Nasseri, when he in the past was asked about these issues, he often would lean into these uh, kind of points that were sort of tangential. Like one time he said that um, his point was that often when you when outside researchers conducted attempted to study these issues, that their research was flawed because they had no choice but to ask people their recollection of how much time they spent on, on social media apps. And that people's recollection of that time often wasn't actually that accurate. So, so in their answers, you see them pointing to flaws in, or maybe not flaws, but you know, uh, potential concerns about previous research rather than sharing their own research. Um, which I think it just like that often, like often Facebook's responses in, for difficult questions, often the responses don't actually answer the question at hand, but Well, but I was going to say to you, uh, it sounds to me like those are very lame responses. How do you measure that response, and, and what's your reaction to that? You know, like, I have a hard time measuring it because I feel like my job is to just, like, say what is and what they said, but, but indeed, you can see... Um, 
like Senators uh, Blumenthal and Senator Blackburn, who just, uh, they often have very little in common, but they actually share a lot of uh, the same interests in this topic. You can see in their um, conversations about this issue in the past year, a lot of concern about um, kind of uh, what it took to learn about Facebook's own research and the fact that we didn't learn about it from Facebook itself, that it took a concerned employee documenting it and coming forward with the research. Um, what another, but there was also an aspect of Facebook's response to our article about the research that was sort of interesting, which was that they often, um, they kind of shifted to this idea that uh, the stories were somehow flawed in their view because these issues don't affect all teenagers. And indeed, these issues don't affect all teenagers. And we point that out in the story. But, but there's all kinds of issues in, that we come across in life that don't affect everybody, but that I think many people still view as a valid conversation to have, like something like um, addiction or uh, disabilities access or poverty. Like, like there's all kinds of issues that our community members might struggle with that, that maybe like I myself don't, don't struggle with, but I think most people would still consider those issues to be a valid conversation to have. And, and that Facebook hadn't shared this, this research with parents and with teenagers themselves kind of a, prevented these conversations from happening until a concerned employee came forward. Well, we've got a lot of uh, parents and educators, some who are at home, some who are in this room today. I'm going to ask you the $64,000 question. Do you have any thoughts, based on what you've uh, uh, researched and what you've uh, read and what you've written about this topic, any thoughts about how much teens uh, should be using social media and perhaps what's a, a good age? And thank you for telling us that Facebook could, uh, Kids is on, uh, on pause. But uh, give us your thoughts on that. So that is the question. And I can tell you, I've spoken with so many doctors and researchers and um, uh, like teachers and parents, you know, many, like many of you in the audience. And it turns out at this point in time, it doesn't seem like there's a clear number. So what the research shows is that um, or some of the research shows that in general, the amount of time that people, and not just teenagers, like anybody, uses social media is directly linearly linked to their risk of experiencing things like depression and anxiety. And it would be great if, if your doctor could tell you, like, you know what, 40 minutes for you is the magic number, anything less than that is safe, and anything more than that, you really risk kind of going off the deep end. And unfortunately, like we don't have that number yet, but there's this book called You Are What You Click. It's by um, Professor Brian Primack. Um, and his book is really helpful because he, and I think it's interesting for teenagers, their parents, but also like non-teenagers who are also kind of just struggling with these issues because he goes into how not all social media is equal. That for different people, different types of social media um, could have you know, a huge benefit for their life, but also a huge negative. And so in general, the types of social media when people are exposed to more strangers, that can um, be a risk factor. 
And then another risk factor he found was that the number of social media apps that a person used was correlated with there being more risks for them. Um, so he, one of his pieces of advice for people was to really like look beyond the like main apps people think about, you know, look beyond just like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, and like look at like the long tail of other apps. So like Pinterest, for example, um, you know, like some of the teenagers I spoke with described how, um, what is it called? Like, like beautiful plants on Instagram actually made them feel really good about themselves. Um, so, but to answer your question, I, I wish I had a number for you. Don't have it. No 64,000 for you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Well, uh, the, the book that uh, Georgia referenced, uh, You Are Who You Click, if you uh, click on the bar that's on the pamphlet, I hope everyone got a pamphlet, that points you to additional resources, and that is one of the resources uh, that uh, we have highlighted uh, for tonight. So Georgia, we've said a lot about the ill effects of social media. I know we have a lot of folks in this room who use social media, a lot of folks uh, at home who use social media. Can you talk to us about some thoughts about the benefits of social mm -hmm. media? We don't want to leave everyone with a bad taste and say, just shut it off. There must be some good things. There's so many good things. So combating loneliness, discovering communities, like learning how to create content. Um, one of the stories that really stuck with me was a, an undergraduate at Stanford University named Sylvia. And she uses a wheelchair and she described how when she first got a smartphone and logged on to Instagram years ago, I think, I believe she was 12 or 13, her first experience was one of the other teenagers my age I see on Instagram aren't using a wheelchair. They're doing things um, that I can't do and she described as feeling really alienated. Then fast forward several years and she had kind of very intentionally gone through and followed disabilities rights advocates and people in her community who cared about disabilities. And she had suddenly created this community for herself full of people who either experienced or cared about disabilities. And she said this community was so much bigger than any in-person community she had ever experienced in her whole life. And so for her, it was this game changer in how she viewed the, you know, the world of disabilities advocacy and, and what it could mean. And she now actually posts a lot of content on Instagram about kind of her life uh, as a disabled person and kind of uh, what she sees as, I think she described it as like how normal acts of joy could be a really powerful statement. Um, so like anything so was, in life with limits, it can be uh, a useful tool. Uh, I, I assume you're on social media. I am. And, and, and I, I both struggle with social media and I love it. And I'm also completely addicted to it. Well, all right. So tell us, um, we're, we're about to wrap up, but I wanna know, are you gonna continue writing on this topic and uh, what other issues should we be looking for in this area? and uh, where can we find more of your writing on this topic? Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely gonna continue writing on this topic. I 
really interested in some of the ways that companies now are thinking about how to address these issues. And also often with any fix the companies roll out, there could be unintended consequences. So I get that like these are really tough issues for the companies too. And you know, I, I, I still I work for the Wall Street Journal, so you can look at uh, my name, Georgia Wells, and follow the stories because I think this is only the very beginning of an issue that's not going away anytime soon and really, really affects the like happiness of a huge part of our population. So what's your Twitter handle? It's Georgia underscore Wells. So G-E-O-R-G-I-A underscore W-E-L-L-S. Well, thank you so much, Georgia. I thank you for uh, doing the research that you did, the excellent writing that you have done, and really unmasking uh, a problem uh, that uh, has existed uh, around the country and actually around the world. Uh, and we're grateful to you for doing that research, sharing it with us tonight, and uh, joining us here in beautiful Franklin, Massachusetts. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, everybody in Franklin. Well, it's now my great uh, pleasure and honor to uh, introduce Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito. Lieutenant Governor Polito is the 72nd Lieutenant Governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and she began her service in that role in 2015. Since taking office with Governor Charlie Baker, Lieutenant, Karen, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito has visited and partnered with leadership in all 351 of the Commonwealth cities and towns, including several visits right here in Franklin, Massachusetts. And I got to hand it to her, she was out in Shelburne Falls and Holyoke uh, earlier in the day and still found time to make it, with, uh, make it uh, here to Franklin today. In that process of visiting all these communities, she should develop close relationships with state representatives, state senators, mayors, town administrators, and other municipal officials, building on a fundamental belief and understanding that the Commonwealth's success is driven by the strength of its diverse expanse of people and places. As the chair of the Governor's Council to address sexual assault and domestic violence, Lieutenant Governor Polito and a diverse team of professionals have brought innovative approaches to combating domestic violence and sexual assault, in including establishing a toolkit that empowers local law enforcement and victims to identify abuse and hold offenders accountable. And she's also leading the development of the first statewide public awareness campaign in almost 20 years. Lieutenant Governor Polito began her public service in local government, serving as a member of the Shrewsbury Board of Selectmen, and in 2001 was elected a state representative, representing the residents of the 11th Worcester District, that's Shrewsbury and Westboro, for five terms. Lieutenant Governor Polito is a graduate of Worcester's holy name, Central Catholic High School, Boston College, and New England School of Law, and she's a lifelong resident of Shrewsbury, where she owns and operates a commercial real estate development firm and lives with her husband, Stephen Rodolakis, and their two children. I've had the pleasure of working with Lieutenant Governor Polito on manufacturing issues that encourage making it in Massachusetts, and we've partnered on some legislation geared towards helping teens uh, with the harmful consequences of the transmission of indecent visual depictions and sexually explicit images. She is a tireless advocate on every issue, and she shows up. Indeed, 
When I was talking to her a few weeks ago about this program and her potential participation, her response was simply, when and where. Please join me in giving a very warm and enthusiastic Franklin welcome to my friend and our Lieutenant Governor, the Honorable Karen Polito. Well, good evening, everyone. I want to thank you so much for the invitation to be back in this room again. It was several years ago that we had a conversation with students and with the leadership in, in the school district around this very topic. But before I share some of my thoughts, I want to thank Representative Roy, uh, your friend, for your leadership and your interest in this uh, issue and the well-being and health of the students in the Franklin Public Schools and at this high school has not waned a bit. You are committed, you care, and you work really hard, not only in your district, but up on Beacon Hill, not only for the students here, but for students across the Commonwealth. It's a real credit tonight to have someone like Georgia Wells speak from the other coast of our country about her unmasking of the dangers associated with so social media and for your tracking her down literally to have her come into this room and deliver that message was extremely powerful and we appreciate your making that available to all of us tonight. We are very, very grateful. I thought the questions and how you had her interact with us was done superbly. So thank you very much, <laughs> Representative Roy. So, long introduction, thank you, that was very kind of you. Uh, the one title I would just amplify is that I'm a mother of two teenagers. My son is graduating from high school, you know, just 20 or so days, and my daughter is a sophomore in high school. So I'm in this space as a parent. So to the parents here in this room and those who are listening at home, I, I know how difficult this whole issue is uh, for you as I've experienced it as well. I would say a couple of things first and foremost to the school leadership here, to the parents, and to the students. Number one, you are intentional around your activities to address the issues of health and well-being of students. The fact that you have a task force the fact that I came in tonight and students were greeting us with information and pamphlets and ways to be involved, that this is a student-led conversation in many ways, is really powerful. This does not happen in every high school in every school district. We wish that it would, but it's happening here. You've made a, an effort to be strategic about this. You have a plan, and you're following through with that. That's fantastic. The why we do this, I think, is obvious, but it needs to be stated again. You, know, you think about our schools in the traditional sense that students go to school to learn so that they develop skills and knowledge to be prepared for life's journey of work and career and hopefully satisfaction with what you choose to do with your time over decades that involve work and well-being for your family. That's one way to look at schools. The other is the enrichment that comes with activities, might be sports, culture, arts, robotics, whatever it is to make a student more well-rounded beyond their academic experience. And then we talk a little bit about driving because 
when students leave here, they have to go and learn how to drive and drive well and be safe in that experience. And we touch upon drinking and driving and drugs. And we need to be, as part of that, intentional around the health and well-being and the social behaviors associated with young adulthood and entering life more independent of all of us. And that's the piece that we need to do more of and which comes into clear focus when you talk about social media and everything that Georgia uh, brought to our attention tonight is obvious to us, but it needs to be stated from a third-party source. And that social media influences all of us. We read information, we look at what we choose to, and the same influences on adults around how we behave happens to our children. So they're going to continue to get bombarded with the messages and might even veer into the path, or they will, where they want to get more of something. Some of that as adults we're going to see, and some of it we're not. I can say tonight confidently, unfortunately, that this isn't going away. You know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever the next things will be, are always going to be there. Mobile devices and how we communicate is always going to be a part of our life. When you look at a pandemic and how much we relied on technology to communicate, to do our jobs, to keep each other safe, and unfortunately for our kids, safer at home made them more isolated and not able to interact in person, eyeball to eyeball in person, and you know, have that interaction. And so that isolation has even caused other uh, ramifications for their social health well-being and the practice of good behavior. So coming out of the pandemic, having a conversation like this is so, so very important and to then build on it. So a couple things I wanted to talk about tonight in terms of the problem and solve piece. That's what we do. Legislature, people like me in elected office with the governor, we see problems and we try to solve them. And one of the problems that has come out of all of this social media and the ability to use mobile devices to text and share information with one another is this issue of sharing images called sexting. And this is something that the school district and others obviously across the country and across the Commonwealth have become more familiar with. I give credit to Representative Roy, and it was then Sergeant Jason Riley, who a few years back when these incidents occurred here, you took action. And it was Sergeant Riley that saw repeated behaviors that needed to be addressed that he went to the legislature, in particular Representative Roy, and said, this is not something we can fix alone. There needs to be a correction to the state statute. Because... The statute is not current with what is happening with media and mobile devices and the exchange of information. So what happens now is that when a young person in a private context, so you, you, we talked about the public context of social media and the bombardment of information and messages that kind of stick to the, the psyche or the... <laughs> the, the thoughts of young people and, and all of us, but in terms of a young adult. 
And then they're in a now in a relationship. And in a relationship which is considered private, but a relationship which they think is one of trust, there's an exchange of a, a visual of a body part that's a private part, is known as pornography in the current uh, statute. And if that person exchanges that image with someone, thinking that it's not going to go anywhere, then it does, then it's a problem. Because under current statute, that's considered the dissemination of pornography. And that comes with a penalty in law as a result of that behavior. Now, a young person doing that probably doesn't know that, right? But they could find themselves in the court system as a result of that. I'll give you an example. The governor and our, our team, following up on what Representative Roy uh, did to correct this, called upon uh, some survivors to talk about what this meant to them. There was a woman who came forward to testify in favor of Representative Roy's bill and basically said this, 15 years later, 15 years after graduating or coming through high school, she was testifying in favor of changing the law. Because when she was 15 years old in high school, in the context of a private relationship, she exchanged an image of her private body part with her boyfriend. The boyfriend then used that image to coerce her into uh, sex, and it became a matter of sexual assault. When she went to hold him accountable in the courts for that action against her, then the she became subject to the dissemination of child pornography. Now, that person, that boyfriend, went on to share that image in the school district beyond the private context of that relationship to harm her, shame her, embarrass her, and traumatize her. And it was used as a threat so that she would not come forward and would not hold him accountable. Now, that just didn't happen to her. This is happening to a lot of young people. And so 15 years later, she's testifying, saying, that was not only traumatic to me when I was in high school, but it's traumatic to me 15 years later as an adult. She went on and graduated college. She started her career, but she remembers it like yesterday. And she wants to prevent that from happening to other teenagers. So the fix in the law that we're advocating for and because of the tenaciousness of Representative Roy now a, a second time filing the bill and bringing it to light with the governor and our team wants to get this corrected. That basically a teenager involved in that kind of situation would not be entangled in the law in terms of a felony conviction, but would be diverted to an education program to understand the consequences of that action as opposed to having an involvement in the criminal justice system. Now, if the prosecutor says, well, it was an intentional act and this person does need to be held accountable, it's a misdemeanor for a juvenile, not a felony charge, and then also a diversion program that could be uh, done so that that person understands how to conduct him or herself in the future and a requirement for school districts to start to incorporate into your curriculum, which you already do, what this kind of behavior means. So when you're talking about 
behavioral health, you're talking about relationship health, and you're talking about the consequences of exchanging visual materials and what that means. And so if we can get that embedded into the Massachusetts laws, we can do a whole lot more to protect teenagers and also prepare them better for their future, which is the other solve that our administration put forward, which is the Respectfully campaign, which is what I came here for three years ago to ask you to help us amplify. Because before that, it was 20 years ago that there was a public awareness campaign aimed at our youth of the Commonwealth to educate them and work with them around what is healthy relationship, what is a healthy friendship, what is a toxic relationship, what can you do to not only protect yourself but to protect your peers, and how can you identify red flags in controlling relationships, how can you foster more relationships of trust starting in middle school, building on that for high school, and then preparing that high school for college campus, your job, or wherever you find yourself in, in the community. And that, respectfully, campaign has now been three years strong, thanks to the funding that has come from the legislature with the advocacy of people like Representative Roy to allow you as a school district to use that social media campaign. And yes, as Georgia Wells said, it can be helpful to use social media in a positive way because the Respectfully campaign, which was peer-informed and designed by youth, is seen on Instagram, TikTok, uh, Snapchat, so that these messages, the positive messages, and the ability for teens to say, okay, I'm in a situation like this, or my best friend is in a situation like this, how do I resolve it, has that kind of content and information. We've had millions of likes and views uh, on the pages associated with the Respectfully campaign, and we put it out there again to this community and to others across the state to fully embrace it. Respectfully, it's on us, it starts with us, is about exemplifying good choices, good behaviors, and building that resiliency in developing that toolkit that we want our students to graduate with along with all the education and skills and other uh, demands that we have on them as they go into adulthood and need to know that they have that toolkit available to them no matter where they are and no matter who they're with. So those are the couple of things I just wanted to use as examples of how government can be helpful in correcting gaps in the laws or updating what needs to be updated. Obviously, in, in the context of social media, there's a lot more work to do, and we're hoping to get that bill over to the governor's desk. We sign that into law, and I want to just credit this community for doing a lot to help us get as far as we have into getting it over the goal line. And then, of course, everything that you're doing, tonight included, having a panel discussion, engaging the public to answer the questions that are on your mind, and especially coming out of a pandemic where there are a lot of needs to have to address because of the pressures that our teens have been faced with. We want to make sure we're doing everything possible to keep them healthy, to keep them safe, and to give them all the support they need to be happy, to be successful, and to be satisfied with the experiences they have in school districts like this. So just thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and to also 
see the presentation that you have tonight. And again, it's a pleasure to always work with you, Representative Roy. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you very much, very, very much. That was a great um, speech and we really appreciate the information you shared with us. We're gonna transition now to our panelist discussion. And to facilitate that, I'm gonna bring up Mrs. Morano. Mrs. Paul Morano is our Director of Student Services. Um, she's our, my partner in crime on a many, of our, many of our community engagement committees that we, we have in town that we work with. And I'm excited to uh, transition to this part of the, uh, this segment of the presentation as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Morano. Thank you, Mr. Jaguar. Oh, and you can see me over the podium. This doesn't happen very often. Usually I need a stool to stand on. This is nice. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, Lieutenant Governor Polito. It's a pleasure having you here tonight. So I'd like to introduce our panel, our experts from Franklin Public Schools and our community. Um, I'm so pleased to have these wonderful individuals with us tonight who have worked so hard and tirelessly this year, um, coming out of the pandemic, working so closely with our students to make sure they are um, succeeding both not just academically, but social emotionally as well. Um, they have worked some long hours and um, I just can't thank them enough. Um, so to start off, we have Ms. Lily Rivera, who is our marketing and communication specialist, who also I wanna give a shout out to because she has orchestrated this evening's events and it's like, Amazing. She has done amazing work with our promotional materials as well as bringing the speakers along and making sure we're a well-oiled machine. So thank you, Lily. We really appreciate it. Um, Lizzie Morrison, who is our principal at Annie Sullivan Middle School. We have Rebecca Ballinger, one of our fantastic school adjustment counselors from Keller Elementary. We have Ann Davies, another school adjustment counselor from our high school. Jennifer Briggs, another school adjustment counselor from our high school. And we have... Um, Miss Gretchen Scotland, who is our own FPS um, influencer on TikTok. She, how many likes are we up to, Gretchen? There we go. And she makes greeting cards, beautiful personalized greeting cards. Um, and then we have, of course, Jennifer um, Levine, who is from our Safe Coalition, a wonderful partner to our community. So we're going to start tonight with our first question. And considering your experience in your current roles, has your relationship with social media changed or evolved since you started in your role? Are we starting off with me? Sure. All right, so just to echo that, I am Lily Rivera. I'm the marketing communication specialist for both the town and the school, so I spend a lot of time on social media. Uh, just to give you some background, um, I grew up with social media. A lot of my friends uh, were really big influencers on Vine and YouTube as I was growing up, and that's actually what got me into this type of work. I saw that there was a lot of work behind uh, content creation and all these awesome videos and these posts didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a lot of work that goes into them. Um, so when I started pursuing and learning more about marketing communications, uh, I, I realize that there's going to be a point where I can't be offline, really. It's going to be part of my everyday routine. Um, I'm going to need to be posting. I need to be informed. I need to watch the news all the time. So actually, I, I did... I, 
did myself a favor and I took a break. I'm like, I can turn this off and I can sort of be unplugged for a little bit. Um, so the way that my behavior with social media has changed is it's actually become a lot more intentional. Um, and it's actually increased because I have to be, you know, on the town socials, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all that. Um, and so it's just evolved more in that way where I'm looking at social media as a tool. Uh, and I'm also being more um, hyper aware of what it is that I'm engaging with and what it is that I'm putting out there. Um, not only just when I'm representing uh, the school as well as the town, but also when I'm on social media myself, I'm thinking about, you know, if I like this tweet, it'll probably show up on someone's feed saying that I liked it. And what does that say about me? Um, if I'm following this user and I, you go to their Twitter profile page and it says that I'm following them, does that say something about me? Um, so that's really been more, more so my experience with social media and um, how it's changed since I started my role here. Thank you. I would agree um, that my social media perspective has changed since becoming an administrator. I think we're constantly ke keeping up with the different platforms, and in my role, it oftentimes is investigations of conflicts that are happening outside of school, and if they're referencing um, a streak on Snapchat, I need to know what that means and where to look for that. Um, so I definitely have to be more informed. Um, I think my own personal use of social media um, has changed. This is my third year as a principal and started in the first year of the pandemic. So I think we all use social media quite a bit to just connect with one another. Um, but I would say it's more thoughtful about um, my approach to social media. I really try to model for the students to not be on my phone, um, to not have a phone out if we're asking that of them during the school day. Um, so those are my, my thoughts. So my role is a little bit different being on the elementary level. When I first started 15 years ago, um, any of my students having a cell phone was unheard of. Not so much anymore. Um, I come from the school of thought where I still have a paper calendar. So I'm about as old school as you get. Um, so one thing I can say about my role in school, how it's changed, is I'm more accessible. Um, if I'm, you know, with this, as a counselor, we're always all about the building. And so I can easily be reached through text or a phone call. And that's made my life actually easier. Um, in a personal way, it's helped me connect with my kids. Um, I do also have to be mindful because not only do I work in the community, I live in the community. I have three children in the community, and so I have to be hyper aware of their roles, what, um, what they might be liking, what they might be following, and making sure that I'm always on top of what they're doing. Uh, I'm a counselor at the high school level, and I've seen it evolve a lot in my time in the school system. Um, social media has always been a thing since I've been a school counselor, and so a lot of what I see are peer issues starting on social media. I would say the majority of times a student comes to me with a peer issue, it's definitely social media related, and so... Um, like everybody was saying, we have to be up on the latest trends in order to know even what they're talking about in order to start trying to resolve it. Um, what I will say is, as the pandemic hit, we've seen a lot more anxiety related to coming back into the buildings. Uh, students have relied on social media for the past two years, which has been a great thing to stay connected, but it's been awfully hard for them to come back in a lot of cases. So that's something that 
I think we were anticipating to a degree, but we've definitely seen it um, more and more resurfacing. Um, in my own personal life, I've tried to be, I think, I think one of the themes tonight is going to be intention. Um, we all try and be very intentional. I try and preach that to my students as well, um, thinking about how much you're using social media, thinking about what you're putting out there, um, thinking about what time you take away from social media. Um, I think we see a lot of students relying on social media and then it bleeds into their school day and their inability to focus. They're anxious about what their peers are doing and we see it impact everything around them. And so um, I think that is a huge thing of, of what we're seeing, at least more recently since coming back in person from the pandemic. Um, hi, I'm Jen Briggs. Um, I'm also here at the high school. Um, I would like to piggyback on what Anne said. Um, I notice um, for adults as well, actually, being very intentional that we have to be equally as intentional with our social media use, our social media use, or even just continuing to look at our phones. We want to model good, um, you know, we want to be good role models for our students. Um, my social media use personally, I started at my 20th high school reunion. Um, everyone said, why are you not on Facebook? I said, I don't know, but let me try it out. Um, you know, and I, I think right now being in a, it, Right now, being in a day and age of, um, you know, um, everything is instantaneous. We can, we have news right away. Kids, you know, there's no such thing as waiting anymore. Um, and I think that that's really important for us. I think that, thank you. <laughs> I think that's really important for us um, as, as adults to keep in mind, I mean, it's very, very, we, we need to model that type of patience, um, not constantly looking at our phones. So my social media, I try to be a good role model. I also, you know, is very, very important for us um, as adults, you know, here in this high school community to know what the new apps are. So there may be strange apps on our phones, but we download them and try them out and see what they're all about and quickly get off of them if we shouldn't be on them. But um, it's really important for us to understand how they work in order to support our students and keep them protected and keep them safe. So. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Gretchen again. Um, and so I have kind of a really interesting perspective on social media because I am a student, um, I'm a senior, and I also have this um, online presence on TikTok. And so I think that my perspective on social media has kind of evolved because I got Instagram for the first time, I think probably like end of fifth grade, sixth grade, because everyone was getting it. Um, and so, you know, there is that like trap you kind of get into where it's, you know, you're comparing yourself to other people. And I think I definitely tried my best to be aware of that, you know, as I was kind of, you know, growing up these those couple of years. Um, and then when I started gaining followers on TikTok, um, that kind of gave me a whole new perspective. And so um, I had to really kind of be consciously aware of my mindset throughout that whole process because, you know, it's not a consistent thing when, you know, you're gaining followers on TikTok. Um, it's super up and down with like everything else in life. And so, you know, for example, if I'd get like 2,000 followers one night um, on TikTok, you know, it's, there's something in that that, you know, makes you excited and it's like people like me and, you know, then when you 
don't necessarily get that same following the next night or in a week or so, you know, you maybe you get 100. It's, it's really interesting because you have to kind of catch yourself getting into that mindset and kind of fixing it and thinking this doesn't measure my self-worth. Um, and so I think coming to these substance abuse task force meetings and, um, you know, becoming more aware about social media and what it can do to you um, and how it can have a lot of positive impacts, um, like with my greeting cards and everything, but also being aware of it is really the important piece. And I think that's how my view has kind of evolved. That was incredible. Um, hi, everybody. So I have a really interesting relationship, I think, with um, my current role and social media. So I'm here as the executive director and co-founder of the SAFE Coalition. And when the SAFE Coalition first started, I actually didn't have any social media. I didn't have a Facebook. And I actually did not have a Facebook for the first four years that the SAFE Coalition existed. Um, in 2004, I was a freshman in college, and we were one of the first schools to get Facebook. And for the next five years, I was inundated with um, meeting people, connecting with them through Facebook, watching their lives shift and change as we all went through college and graduated and became successful in our first careers. And I felt like it was a third arm and I really struggled with it and I actually deleted it. And so for about 10 years, I didn't have a Facebook. Um, and one of the interesting things is, you know, certainly Jeff Roy is one of the most important people in all of our lives for many different reasons. You know, Jeff shared with me that if we want the message of substance use awareness and mental health awareness to really be shared across um, the community, we have to have a greater presence on Facebook so that we could provide support and let folks know that support was available. So much to the chagrin of <laughs> what I thought was right in the moment, I got back onto Facebook and created a very limited Facebook page so that I could help manage the Safe Coalition page. And that has been an incredible experience because I have really tried to limit my personal use of Facebook because I know that mentally it's probably not the best for me so that I can have a presence through the Safe Coalition Facebook and provide access and availability um, through a social media lens to those in the community. So my relationship has shifted and changed in a few different ways, but I am happy that the Safe Coalition has a Facebook page. I am happy that I am not super dedicated personally to my Facebook page. I do have an Instagram page. It has a lot of personal stuff on it, <laughs> um, but I, I am happy I have that. So my, my role has definitely shifted and changed, and, and really in the lens of providing safe coalition the opportunity to have a social media platform. Thank you, everyone. So we have our next question. So throughout the peak of the pandemic, we saw, saw how social media played a part in keeping us socially connected, even though we were so physically distanced, right? We had the virtual baby showers, the virtual birthday parties, the happy hours, the reunions with college and high school friends and roommates. I think I saw my old high school friends more on social media, I'm on uh, Google Meet and Zoom than I did for years. How now that we're, we're coming out of the pandemic, how do we reintegrate and prioritize being socially connected in person? So Lily, you wanna start? Um, I think it's exactly that last part of that question is prioritizing being socially connected in person. Uh, something that I do, at least with my phone, is I, I mute it. I know um, Apple just came out with that new update that you can like notify, it'll let someone know that if your phone is silenced or in mm -hmm. focused mode, and my friends are like, 
why is your phone always silent? It's like, I love my peace. You know what I mean? I'm like, unless you're like my boss, my mom, or like if I'm babysitting your kid, I'm like, you can wait. You know, like, I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, you don't need my response right now. I don't always have to be on. Is the world going to burn if if you don't get a text back or a Snapchat back? When I muted my Snapchat notifications, it's like I could finally, like I was free. Mm-hmm. Like I could breathe. I felt like I had wings. <laughs> uh, and it's just, I think it's exactly that. Uh, I, I have a friend who uh, they study over in Boston, and so I drove the hour to go see them in Boston, and they were on their phone the whole time. I was like, girl, I know I did not just drive the whole hour for you to be on the phone because you could have FaceTimed me for this. <laughs> so just put the phone away. Put it on mute. Whatever's going on, as, you know, as long as it's not your parent calling you, it can, it can wait. Um, if you feel like if the, your phone's going to go off and you're going to want to check it, put it on mute. Put it away. And it may, it may be a little bit stressful at first. I, I remember I, I was with a group of my friends, and my friend was like, let's go for this walk, but let's put our, let's, I'll leave our phones here. And it was like you could see everyone's fight or flight just like kick in. <laughs> and it was like, okay, well, what if, the, what if something happens? And it's like, all right, then we'll just bring one phone. And it's like, well, what if something happens to that phone? It's like, okay, <laughs> there's like nine of us here. If something were to happen, I think maybe, hopefully, we can handle it. I, you know, there's strength in numbers. But it's just like there, there's a, a clear detachment there. Um, and I think it's being intentional, intentional about the way that you interact with your phone and also being intentional about being present when you're with people that you care about. Thank you. I agree. Um, We also had to really support the students in the transition Mm -hmm. from being at home and on their screens all the time, many different screens, um, to a phone-free zone in school. It's not 100% phone-free, but that's the expectation that we have. Um, And there was a lot of anxiety around that. And a lot of it was parents needing to connect with their children over plans for after school, who's picking them up, did you forget your lunch, a number of different like housekeeping things. And so we're continuously working to kind of break that and have the students not have to rely on their phones, which for six hours a day is a pretty huge feat when they've been connected to their phone 24 hours a day. So we're continuing to work on that um, and just supporting the difference that our students and the challenges and obstacles that they're overcoming all the time. I think the feeling of not having their phone or access to that immediate information causes a ton of anxiety for the students. So just having those open, honest conversations. Um, And I will say having the phones away um, helps us with safety concerns. When students are walking out of the building, it's like they're they're not even looking where they're going. They're just like robots walking with the screen in their face. So um, those are some of the things that we've, that we've seen and um, ways that we're trying to support them. This is the meat of the discussion for me as far as my students are concerned. Because with the younger kids, the pandemic really kick-started our younger students into a dependency on electronics a lot earlier. So um, I think what one of the things we had to realize is that our third, fourth, and fifth graders did not organically learn how to be in a partnership or do group work or even know how to read nonverbal cues anymore. So I feel like a lot of my work this year has been um, reminding people that there is no mute button anymore and that we actually have to have <laughs> thought bubbles again. And um, 
that there are certain things that we need to be able to look at someone in the face and be comfortable with the words that we're saying and feel that that's being our best self. Um, and it's a long road, a journey that I'm enjoying being on because we have a lot of aha moments. But um, it, is, it is something that we're seeing prevalently throughout the elementary level. I think this is such an important question, and thank you for asking it. I think in order to even start to answer it, we need to take a step back and think about the fact that for the past two years, the majority of our interactions have been online, and recognizing that these are habits that are going to be difficult to break and giving ourselves a little bit of grace with that, and maybe taking that step back and understanding that perspective and that it is going to be hard and acknowledge, acknowledging that for ourselves and for all of the kids that we work with. Um, I think that can go a long way in connecting with them and helping them recognize that we are partners with them in this. Um, this is going to be difficult for children. It's going to be difficult for adults. Um, one of the suggestions that I have is setting aside that time and, and making it screen-free time, which is going to be a hard thing at first, and I'm sure kids will, will balk at that and will try to, to push, but it's going to get easier the more you do it and with consistency. Start with an hour a day. Build from there. Um, like Lily said, uh, shutting off the notifications on your phone for a while. Uh, it's hard at first, but these habits are going to take time to... to readjust to recalibrate now that we are all back trying to socialize in person um, and understanding that we are not the only ones who are having a difficult time with that. I think for students who see their world online and constantly see what's, what's scrolling on their screen, it's easy for them to think that everybody else that they're looking at on the screen is doing okay, but that's not always the case. And what you see is only a snapshot of somebody's life. It's not their whole life. And I think that's what a lot of my conversations focus around with the students that I work with every day is reminding them of that because that can be a really difficult thing if your face is just in your screen and you're not seeing everything else around you and you, you don't have that perspective. Um, so giving, giving everyone some grace and understanding and, and recognizing that these habits are really hard um, and modeling the behavior that you'd like to see in, in others around you, especially kids. Um, if, if you're a parent and when you get home from work, you're, you're scrolling on your phone and you're, you're, you use that to unwind, it's understandable, but maybe taking a few minutes and recognizing that maybe the, the children around you need to see the phone away for a little bit so that they don't necessarily think that this is, this is the normal way it's supposed to be. Um, so those are some suggestions, but I think the biggest thing I can say is just recognizing that it is going to be hard and allowing yourself to, to feel that. Um, it's been a long time that we've been on screens for, for two years. Thanks. And I think um, also um, that recognizing and, and you know, encouraging our, our teens and our children and um, that we can do hard work. Um, yes, we do have to be um, patient, um, but we actually have to put some work into setting those boundaries, um, encouraging more time off of the screens, encouraging social time. Um, I, you know, again, as Ann said, if, you, if, if you're going home and you're unwinding, that might be okay, but maybe that has a time limit that you're unwinding. Maybe you, you know, maybe we start, we have to start slow. Maybe we start slowly and it's just at dinner time, right? So much of our world was online, um, but let's get back to face-to-face -face family dinners. 
Um, even if we're not all at the same table, maybe maybe it's even turning off the TV. I mean, that's a screen. It's not our. It's not the phone necessarily, but you know, having some time where we're where we're actually interacting, it is going to take time and patience to start to have those face-to-face interactions again. And also being patient, recognizing that um, there were some skills that were lost in that in, during the pandemic, and that um, you know, we're, there's a little bit of maturity that needs to be gained. Um, back and so I think we really you know if I can use the word intentional again I think we as the adults need to be really intentional in how we set these boundaries and how we um, you know make these plans to to do more spend more time outside or, or do more exercise or take more time for yourself take do self-care um, and then there's always time for your phone because you know it it can be a really great tool um, you know, it's where we get our news, it's where we network, it's where we see our high school friends that we saw during the pandemic. But, um, you know, I think, I think being willing to put in the hard work, but then also being patient with yourself is important. I think that the acknowledgement, acknowledgement piece of the whole thing of how the past two years, you know, things, you know, got turned upside down super quickly um, and how everything went automatically to screens, I think a huge piece of it is realizing that things aren't going to go back to normal right away. It's definitely going to be a gradual process to kind of wean us off of the screens and back into um, in-person interactions. Um, And I think that the main thing is just prioritizing those in-person interactions when we have them, you know, family dinners, um, conversations, you know, in school, in the lunchroom. Um, Because, you know, even still, like at lunch, like, you know, kids are on their phones, um, you know, just kind of naturally because we're just coming out of this two years um, of the pandemic. And so I know, like, for me, um, especially after, you know, having all these conversations with everyone up here um, in our committee meetings, um, being aware of it, like I was saying before, you know, um, I started routinely checking my screen time, um, setting limits so that um, when I was going into an app, you know, it'd tell me, you know, your limit's over. Um, and so that for me was just like a really good um, way to be aware of it um, and to just kind of think. And so I think that that's a huge piece um, that's going to help us eventually get back to normal. It's just a gradual process. Um, and I think we have to just take it one step at a time. Thank you. So, you know, from a, a safe perspective, safe coalition perspective, um, when adolescents come to our program and we talk about social media and we talk about social emotional wellness, some of the teens that we work with, um, there's, there's a real interesting conversation about character because many of the teens that we work with will say that they've lost the things that they felt made them come alive during COVID. So maybe before COVID and before the pandemic, they were an athlete or they were part of clubs, or they played an instrument. And during COVID, they've lost those things. And so in the time that they have spent in elementary school, outside, or being with friends, or playing an instrument, or playing a sport, they've now shifted to social media because that was what was available to them. And so from a safe perspective, what we really try and do with our adolescents is connect with teens about what made them feel most valuable and great before social media and how do we get back to that 
And if that means creating a schedule for social media and how often we use our phone, or if that means getting a good old-fashioned alarm clock in your bedroom and putting your phone downstairs to charge at night so that you can get a full night's sleep, maybe that that's what that means. But we have kids who use social media pretty limitedly in fifth grade, and now they're at the end of their middle school career, and there are many other apps and social media opportunities that they didn't have before that over the last two years they have been intertwined in. So from a safe perspective, we really want to talk with kids about what made them feel alive before, what has shifted as it relates to social media, and how do we get back to a place that the life that you live feels comfortable and also recognizes that many things have shifted and changed over the last two and a half years. And our hope is that we can work with students, children, and their families to create a healthy space for social media and also an opportunity to put it away and to let families know that that's also okay. Thank you. So you've all alluded to some little tidbits of, of, informa- of helpful hints for parents. You know, be intentional, put, put the phone down at dinners and whatnot. Um, so now you have to think of another, another way we can help our families here. So what's something parents should keep in mind when introducing or navigating their family's relationship with social media? And what happens if they're spending too much time on social media? I think a really big, a really important thing to ask yourself um, when considering your own social media use um, is really what is the value that you're getting. Uh, take some time to look at your screen time. What, what apps are you spending the majority of your time on? And when you're using your phone, when do you find yourself putting it down? And why are you putting it down? How are you feeling when you're engaging with, what, when you're scrolling through your Instagram feed? Did one post make you feel a certain way? Did you feel empowered by what it is that you were? Um, I, like, I, I follow some great like, career uh, co- like content creators on Instagram, and I, I tend to resonate with that content, and I find myself reflecting on you know, where I'm going in my career and some of my experiences. And there's other posts where I'll, I'll, take, I'll scroll and then I'll look, oh, cute, I like that bag. Or, oh, I love, the, I love their outfit. <laughs> um, but it's, it's really this thing of what kind of value am I getting? And I think it's, while I've, ta- I've talked on the point of being intentional with your social media use, it's also okay to just be intentional in terms of having it as a form of entertainment. Um, it's okay to disconnect from always being on. Um, I know for me, I was always on social media because I felt the need to be a really good digital citizen and really good global citizen. And I wanted to be informed about what was going on in the news. And it came to a point where I was like, okay, this is a lot of information at once. And to the point where it gave me so much anxiety that I, I was, I don't remember the point where I just, I had to just lay down on the floor and breathe. It just felt so much. I just felt so heavy. And I was like, okay, it's really time for me to reevaluate how it is, how, like, how I'm working with my social media, and is it, am I working for my social media? Is it working for me? What is it that I'm doing, and how is that providing value to my life, and is there a, a, a line for me to be um, walking? And I think it, it's just going back to asking yourself what type, what type of value this is providing, and I think it's really important, another point, um, is for parents to focus on uh, how are you preparing your child for social media? Uh, there's a self-awareness aspect to it. And it's not always so much, okay, well, I have to keep this away from them because it's going to be bad. 
there's so much, obviously, you know, all the social good that we've gotten from social media. Um, so there can be a little bit of resistance sometimes if you're constantly pu pushing this sort of restrictive or protective narrative when there's very obvious value and that can sort of put your child on the offense. I know that was sort of something that I dealt with um, when I was navigating social media and starting to have a relationship with it. I think that the, having the open, honest conversations is number one um, instead of restricting social media because then it almost, it's that addiction, creating that anxiety. The students can't um, can't access what they want to access, but having, just talking about it. You know, I think if you're sitting in your living room watching a TV and a commercial comes on, if people still watch commercials anymore, I don't know, <laughs> but you talk about it or you have a moment to pause and, and process whatever you just watched. And I, when they're on their phone or all of us are on our phone, it's very isolating. And so you're not really talking about it with other people or challenging, you know, morals or what you agree with or what you disagree with. So really just structuring those conversations. I do, you know, there should be limits, I think, even though we don't have a definitive number. Um, but we found that when students come into school not feeling well, really tired, not engaged in their learning, if we kind of try to get to the root of that, it's, well, I was on my phone till two in the morning. So if we can help structure, our students um, aren't necessarily going to turn their phones off just because it's time to go to bed, um, but help create some boundaries and have those conversations. Um, and that's one of the impacts that we've seen is that flat affect when they come into school, um, which affects everyone um, when you don't get enough sleep. So. Social media on the elementary level really relates to Minecraft, Roblox, my, uh, Fortnite, and <laughs> Messenger Kid. So um, I think one of the best things that I can recommend to the younger students is to take off their headphones, listen to who they're playing with, mm. listen to what's being said, and have conversations around that. Listen to how your child speaks. That might even surprise you sometimes, unfortunately. Um, and insist on the family dinners. Everything gets put down. There's so much research. We might have questionable research about social media, but there is undeniable research about family dinners. And that should be a non-negotiable. And that's a great opportunity to have some of these conversations and just to check in on things other than social media. And you might find that you're able to regain some of those old interests that we w once had when we could mingle with other people. So have them unplug those headphones as much as the games are annoying to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to miss a lot more if you let them hide it all in their head. Um, in terms of what's something parents should keep in mind, and I think this is important, that nobody is saying that social media is going anywhere. We're not taking the stance that it's all or nothing. Um, and I think that's important to remember when talking to your kids about it. They're going to shut down if you're taking the stance that, nope, social media is bad, you need to get off of it. I think, I think the key word here is balance and finding a good balance for your family and what's going to work. I think one of the most important things to remember is that it's going to be hard and don't expect it to be easy when you haven't had any sort of regulation around it. It, it will be hard at first and that's okay. Um, and it's about finding what is going to work for your individual family. It, you can't always compare yourself to um, what the family down the block is doing and so it's finding what works for you. And I will say it can be a lot easier to navigate and set limits around 
time off of a screen than trying to police every single app that, that your child is on at all times. That's overwhelming. That's going to be frustrating. So start small and maybe start by, by finding that time to be off of the screens instead of saying, you were on Instagram for this long or you were on this app for that long. Um, that's going to be really difficult and overwhelming. In terms of what happens if kids spend too much time on social media, something that Georgia Wells highlighted that I really want to circle back on is negative social comparison that we see all the time, especially at the high school level. Um, she talked about it a lot in relation to Instagram, but I think we see it with other apps too. Um, students are constantly comparing themselves to others. They constantly are wondering if they, if they are hanging out with the right friends, if they see all of their other friends posting pictures from somewhere else. Um, and it leads to a lot of anxiety, a lot of insecurities. We see that bleeding into school every day. Um, and it's, it's something that we constantly see. We've seen a lot of body image issues come up recently. It's impacting their ability to focus in school. It's impacting their ability to get to class sometimes. So these are all important things to keep in mind and to have conversations with your kids about. Um, it's it's easy to get stuck and only see that one perspective, but it's important that you're, you have the conversations with your kids about the fact that what people post, they're not going to post the terrible day that they just had. They're only going to post the picture of everybody smiling and having a good time. And that's important to highlight with kids, especially at a young age. Um, yeah. Thank you. So um, I think a really good thing to note right now is that Anne and I work very closely together and she honestly took almost word for word what was in my head <laughs> as I was listening to everybody else. But um, no, that's okay. We, we have actually talked at great length about this. So, um, so I would reiterate everything that Anne said, but you know, I think something that's super important um, to remember too is that none of this comes down. Like we're all in this together. Um, you know, Social media and um, social media can be a good tool. We've heard that over and over again. And it, what is important to us as families, something that's important that we need to keep in mind as we're trying to navigate this is that really what you're working towards is just having a healthy relationship with your screen, right? We want to we look for our kids. We want to look at Maybe not necessarily fighting, I mean, time is important, but maybe not necessarily fighting the entire amount of time that they're on, as, as much as looking at how are they spending their time when they're on social media. Mm. Um, I think then also encouraging that, you know, it, the amount of time that you put into that social media, the amount of time that you're putting into looking at your phone and what apps that you're on, make sure that you're taking care of yourself in other ways. So that you're getting enough sleep, that you're getting enough exercise. Um, you know, as Ann said, um, you know, I'll add one more thing that we notice, and Jen, I know you can speak to this, but that would be the addiction that comes from it. We are constantly picking up our phones, and we pick it up, and we just look at the time we tap, right? We want to know the time, and we, we pick it up and look, and nothing's changed in the last 15 seconds <laughs> since you looked at it before, but, but we're so used to it, right? Or I just have to finish this game, or just let me finish this text, um, you know, that kind of thing, being able to put it down and be okay knowing that it's not with you. Um, you know, I, so I think the addiction along with the body image that um, Georgia was talking about, that we've noticed, you know, kids feeling poorly about themselves, including boys. The, the research for boys is much less than the research for girls, but um, they definitely, there definitely is an effect on all, on all students. So, um, 
I think just encouraging a, that healthy relationship with their screens and, and providing a balance and modeling a balance is a good way to start that navigation process. So I clearly can't speak from a parent or a teacher perspective, um, but I will say what I believe as a student um, and as a daughter, um, I think that whether the parent or the parents decide whether to limit their child's social media use or not, I think that one thing that has to be constant is the parent's level um, of interaction with their kid and you know how involved they are in their life. I think that one thing that we talk about a lot is how you know kids might, especially during the pandemic, um, how they might find themselves in their room, you know, just kind of scrolling through social media, kind of getting stuck in a hole, um, you know, whether if it's at if parents are at work or um, you know just how the situation was in the past two years. Um, and so I think that if parents are constantly checking in with their kids, um, you know, asking how their day was, um, trying to start different conversations, I think that that could definitely be a beneficial thing um, in terms of, you know, having a healthy relationship with social media um, overall. And I think that because when people spend too much time on social media, granted, I spend a good amount um, with my TikTok, um, you know, looking at different videos to see what, you know, hashtags are trending or what songs are trending to try to figure out, you know, how I can um, make the best video possible. Um, I think that myself included, when you get stuck scrolling and scrolling, especially on TikTok, um, <laughs> I think that it can be detrimental, you know, if, you know, it, you can get in the wrong kind of headspace um, and, you know, thinking certain negative thoughts and kind of spiral from that. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, something that we just need to be aware of. And that's how kind of family interactions can be really important in kind of um, balancing everything out almost. Awesome. So um, yes to every single thing everyone has said so far, balance and awareness and conversation and spending time together. And again, from a safe perspective, there is a, a shift a little bit that we see, and it's, it is an uncomfortable conversation that has to be brought up, and that is risk and safety. And, you know, when we ask the question, what happens if they teens spend too much time on social media, you know, Georgia Wells mentioned this a, a little bit, um, that there's this addiction piece. And so if we feel inclined to spend more time on social media and we are actively engaged in substance use, there's always an opportunity to have more contacts with people who do not want the best for you. And so what we see from a safe coalition perspective is an incredible amount of adolescents who for the past two and a half years have spent an enormous time on all social media platforms, really struggling with their self-identity, their character, their goals, their future selves, and also being surrounded by people who are encouraging them to purchase substances that are harmful to their overall bodies. And so the longer that students are able to spend time on social media, especially on platforms like Snapchat, the more opportunity our kids have to meet folks who are oftentimes over 18, whose intent is not to celebrate 
their successes that they're posting, but to engage them in conversations that have to do with selling and dealing substances. And that is not a comfortable conversation. And I'm, I'm sure that there are folks in this audience who are cringing and there are folks online who are sitting uncomfortably and that is the world that we live in. And so when folks, families and students come to the Safe Coalition, we have to have a conversation about environmental safety, social media safety, what information we're sharing over social media. I'll give a quick example. Snapchat, you have the opportunity to share your location. And so it is very easy for someone with all the great intentions and all the great family support to say, I have stopped using substances, and for your dealer to show up at the movies or the friend's house or the restaurant that you're at with the intent to deal because they know it will probably happen. And so environmental safety, intention, and risk are all a portion of what we at the Safe Coalition are often really focused on when we think about social media and the intent and the time spent on social media for teens. Well, thank you all for sharing your insights and your resources and suggestions. We really appreciate it. I'd now like to introduce Dr. Ann Bergen our honorary member of the Safe, of the SA Substance Abuse Task Force. She started with us as a school committee member, and now we just insisted that she stay on the committee with us because we love her so much. So Dr. Bergen will open question and answer from the audience. I guess, are good people going to come right up to the, um, to the, you know, so anyone who wants to come up, direct a question to anyone on the panel, um, microphone's right here. And I'm standing right next to it. <laughs> <laughs> So if you can't hear you. Can I buy an E? <laughs> so I don't know. Would anyone like to come up and ask a question? I'm gonna check the chat too, Dr. Bergen. Oh <laughs> Lucas, you're aging yourself. You're aging yourself, buddy. So I can just you have stand to run in. All right, yes, come right up. Hey, no, we, have, we have a live audience member. Um, so I have a fifth grader and um, the pandemic has been sort of isolated for her. Um, I'm, I've been on the bandwagon of no cell phone till eighth grade kind of thought and um, I'm getting the full court press hard. Um, I mean, she created a PowerPoint presentation the other day for me. Um, so, and she's introverted, and we moved here at the beginning of the pandemic, so she wasn't in a pod. It's been a whole thing of, like, social sort of neediness. Um, so, specifically to my elementary counselor and anybody else who wants to chime in, I'd love some guidance in sort of balancing the benefits of getting her to feel included and social and, um, and any sort of, I know you don't love to dictate rules and time limits and things like that and you know definitely before bedtime but I'd love some advice um, just from your perspective as hard as you want to give it because um, I'm open to feedback. Well first welcome to Franklin. <laughs> um, I think that one of the what I would say is have a conversation about why. Why does she want a phone? Is it to connect with other people? Then there needs to be limits. Um, it is hard because as a parent, I, I almost intentionally didn't answer the what if they're on too long part of the, sec the second question because it's hard. Um, as a parent, it's hard to set limits when you know that they're thinking about what everyone else is doing. Um, 
as a parent, we have to make those hard decisions. I think that it's not a bad thing for them to have a phone. Um, my rule was always middle school because that's the first time that they're not going to be with an adult all the time. Um, but I'm seeing the average age now is 10, which is fourth grade for children to have cell phones. I'm sure you've done your research as well. <laughs> um, but I think if you can set it up with limits, guidance, um, with the policy of whenever I want, I can take your phone and take a look at it. Um, there's actually a, re a relief in the children when they know we look, even though they won't admit it, uh, because they have a hard time letting us know when there's difficult things or topics or comments being made. Um, so sometimes I think that the social media can prompt some really good family questions as well. I don't know if that answers, but... If I guidance. can add for a second, one of the resources that will be referenced later, and you might already know of this one, is the Wait, Wait for Eighth campaign. Um, it's a website that's linked, and, and you'll have access to it later. But they talk a lot about waiting until eighth grade for a cell phone, but then also talk about other ways, like maybe it's not a smartphone, or um, other loopholes, I guess, that might help your daughter feel placated a little bit, but still give you the security. So it's something worth checking out. And I also just want to, oh, is this on? Hello? I was, I was silenced. <laughs> what do you call it? Also, uh, I, think it, I think it's one of the tips on there. I think uh, when, when I was first getting introduced to social media, um, I didn't have anyone to really guide me um, on how to be sort of self-aware. Um, so I think if you do make the decision to, collectively and, and as a partnership, um, to involve social media, I think it's, I, I would highlight a benefit of that is you get to engage in teachable moments with your child. You get to guide them in, okay, so what are we going to follow and why are we following this? Okay, so you've been following this account for a little bit. What, what did you learn anything? Is there anything, like what, like what is the reason that you're following this account and what is the value that it's providing? How is it enriching the relationship that you have with people in real life? Um, and I think it actually makes space for more connection, I think, with your parent. And more, um, it allows your child to be a little bit more open and understanding those things and they're being guided in the ways that parents are meant to guide their children. Um, and I wish that's something that I had when I was navigating um, social media. And I think it's a really great opportunity uh, for parents, especially at that grade level, um, to start forming a relationship with social media where it's a tool and sort of building that self-awareness but also building that connection with your child. Can, can I follow up on that and just, could I join the panel for this segment? Okay. Come on, there we go. Just, I'm, I'm sitting down as a, am I silenced as well? Okay. <laughs> I'm sitting down as a parent of a sixth grader and an eighth grader and I will tell you my experience, this is like parent not assistant superintendent. It's difficult and it's hard and it's hard to, to what I would my suggestion would be to tell like a junior in high school that you're now going to start putting regulations on a phone where they hadn't had those regulations since fifth grade would be insurmountable. And I think it would cause a lot of lot of um, conflict that I don't see getting better. My advice, if you are a young if you are a parent of a young person who hasn't received a phone yet. You, start, you have to like bake it in the contract from the drop, you know, that if they're young enough and they had a phone and they're young, have, you know, and I, I've used the family contracts. They work if you do them right away, 
to expect a junior in high school, or, a, or now I would actually back that up into an eighth grader. It's just not a reasonable task. If you're dealing with middle school, I think you have to come up with some family agreements where you as adults are also modeling whatever you're expecting them to do. So if you don't want the phone out when grandma comes over, or you don't want the phone out during when company or eating dinner, that's just going to be make it a shared agreement so that it's everybody. And I think it's more reasonable to ask a junior to do something you would want, you're going to do yourself. When they're really young, I think you can start to build that in. And, and there's uh, some of the resources, because I'm looking at time, there's, there's family plans, there's contracts that can be, right before you even give that phone, freshen that nice, beautiful iPhone box, before they unpackage it and find all the apps that Georgia talked about, is let's just set up some agreements. And, and that's when you have a real captive person. A kid, the, the hour before they get their first iPhone is probably the most engaged you're going to have a kid for a period of time. And I think that's when you have, that's when you have them. It's like they're signing on that 30-year mortgage. You're, you're about to get your dream house. Let's talk about you know, all the fees that you're going to sign. You know what I'm getting at? So um, I just would share that to, to compliment the group. But I'm living it. And the contract is working because I could pull that bad boy out. And um, we, we go over that contract when there's, a, when there's a violation. And then we have to also incorporate some family agreements that we're not going to do certain things. So anyway, for what that's worth, thank you for letting me join. <laughs> they do need a lawyer, yeah. Thank you, Lucas. Any? Of course. Okay. I was thinking about this, listening to um, the speakers, and Jen, following up on what you said, I just had a question. Stepping back sort of from a community perspective, one of the things... I think about a lot of the kids, parents are working. We've got kids out of school at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, starting from middle school on, hours of time when they're socially isolated. Um, they have phones, and we have the addiction issue with the phones. It's very, very difficult. Never mind when there are people around watching them, but when they're home alone, my question is sort of from a, from a community perspective, do you think that there's more that we can do as a community to come together to provide sort of all kinds of activities for kids to do after school to keep them, to substitute phone use for something that's going to engage them, something that's going to replace the addiction. And I, I didn't know if your thoughts about a community coming together, like we've got the Y and we've got Rec and we've got SAFE and uh, we've got the Senior Center coming together to say, how do we come together? So I just wonder if that's something that we could pursue or think about or just... just I don't know. Yeah, so I can I can kind of take that first. Um, so yes, awesome question, and definitely the the pandemic from a safe perspective, created an opportunity for us to really look at the programming that we had and what do we need to create more of to meet the needs of the community? Because we're all in positions where, depending on what's happening in the world, we have to shift the ways that we thought we may need to do the work. So um, for us at SAFE, we really recognize that a lot of programs that kids were involved in after school either don't exist, transportation has been cut, parents have new hours at jobs where they maybe 
previously were able to provide transportation and now cannot. Um, or there's just a different afternoon activity that someone wants to take part of, like substance use or spending time on social media, that may not be most helpful, that will take them off of their course, off of their track for future successes. And so we have been trying to provide alternative holistic therapies at SAFE in the afternoons. So we have yoga, we have drumming, we have karate coming up. We really want to create a youth drop-in center and partner with other public transportation organizations in the community, which is something that we're working on. So in lieu of a late bus at some schools, there could be a public transportation opportunity that for a very low to no fee, students could hop on that type of transportation and come over to the safe office until 4.30 or 5 and be able to get a ride back home. And so if you had asked us that two and a half years ago, that never would have been something that we were thinking of. Maybe we would have thought about having substance use classes in the afternoon, but never having this like open drop-in center with activities and guest speakers and local folks in their 20s who are in recovery to be role models for these kids. It's just not where we were, but this is where we are now. And so with our opportunities to create community partnerships, to think outside the box, to listen to our middle schoolers and high schoolers as to what their needs are, and really be dedicated to creating opportunities for growth for our community members is something that I think we're, we try and strive to do every day and we continue to lean into. Great, thank you, Jen. Also, Lucas and I just recently met with someone from the YMCA and they're really expanding their programming as well. Um, they've recently hired a social worker who is providing some supports and services to families and students. They've also made their scholarship um, application more accessible to all families, where even us as school um, clinicians and counselors can now make referrals to the Y for families. So the YMCA of Franklin is also really expanding their services to families as well. So, and we hope to partnership with them even more. So. And if I can add at the high school level, um, not every student is an athlete, and so sports aren't always accessible for everybody, but we have so many different clubs and activities that meet almost every day. There's a late bus that students have access to. It, it won't keep them till 5 o'clock, but it can help them to be reconnected with their peers face-to-face, -face, like we were talking about a little while ago. And if, you're, if the student has an interest, there is most likely a club that, will in, that will, they will want to join or that they can find... A connection to and if it doesn't exist we have staff that's amazing at trying to help find those opportunities so definitely reach out to the school try to look at the list of clubs it really is remarkable how many different things we have and I can add on to that too um, a little bit um, Oh, went on. <laughs> um, there are a ton a ton of ton of different clubs at the school and I think um, you know like depending on the interest like there's honestly a club, like there's something for you, um, which I think is just a, something so great that we have in our community. Um, and, you know, like what was just said about how, you know, if we don't have a club for your interest, like you can totally start a club. You know, there's so many um, amazing staff who are just so um, integrated in the student body um, and who would love to, you know, support you and whatever interest you have. So that's something really amazing that we have at the high school. Great. Any other questions? And then, nope, no questions in the chat. All right. 
So maybe we transition to the resource sharing? To the resource sharing, okay. yes. Um, so in your handout that you received when you came into the door, if you haven't received one, well, there'll still be plenty as you walk out. We have um, digital resources that, we, that our counselors and um, Lily have compiled um, that should help you find out how to best help your family with social media and, and, questions, and answer some questions you may have. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to highlight a couple of them. Um, I know I mentioned the Wait for Eight campaign that has a lot of resources about how to navigate those battles with younger children who are dying for that cell phone. Um, we also have some tech tools on there. There's, there's a program called Circle. Um, there's different things through Google that can help you put in some of those guardrails and safety controls with, with cell phones, specifically probably more for middle or elementary, where you can shut it off at certain times, where you can make sure that you're able to monitor what they're doing. It definitely gives a lot more transparency and, and makes it easier than trying to wrestle the phone out of their hand. So definitely pay attention to those. Um, there's some books that are highlighted in there. Um, there are a bunch of articles. What am I missing? Good people to follow, social media, social media people to follow, <laughs> where we have good social media, positive. And then the other thing that I wanted to highlight. Yes, Ann, okay. can you, yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, so in your email, earlier this week you should have received um, an email about the opportunity to screen like, the documentary by IndieFlix. Um, Franklin families currently have access to that uh, through Sunday night. Thanks to the Safe Coalition and their generosity, so it's a it's not a long documentary. It's one hour, very digestible. That dives a lot into what we were talking about tonight, and also gives some practical tips and strategies and resources. Um, so please watch it. It's really great. We've all previewed it. It's wonderful, um, and we would encourage you all to to go online. in In your emails, you should have a link to the dashboard and instructions on how to access the film. Um, I will ask on that dashboard page, once you click the link, there is a QR code. Once you've watched the film, if you could fill that out, that would give us a lot of valuable feedback. Um, but please take the time to watch it if you're able. Um, you can watch it from the comfort of your own home. It should be right in your inbox. And I think another reminder will be going out. We will. We'll be sending another reminder out to families. It is, it's a fantastic film to watch. Very informational. I learned a lot from it. I have a lot of takeaways. Um, and, I, and our ninth and 10th graders also watched it um, in their health and PE classes and electives this week too, so feel free to ask them questions about it as well. Um, so we thank you all for coming tonight. Um, we hope you um, enjoyed our presentation and we hope you have at least a couple of tidbits that you took away from tonight. Um, this has been recorded, so we will be posting it, right Lily? We'll be posting it somewhere. Yes, we will be posting it somewhere. So if, if you know anyone who wanted to come tonight but couldn't make it, please share it with them. Um, our panelists will be here after um, down below. If you have any specific questions you want to ask our panelists, that would be great. Um, thank you to Franklin TV and our FHS theater director, Skyler, for your help tonight with um, our setting, up, setting up our equipment and recording us and our mics and, and whatnot. We really appreciate it. Um, so we all have, hope you had a wonderful evening and have a safe drive home. Thank Woo! you. Thank you. Good job, girl. You did awesome. <laughs>